Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our Grand Rounds series. Uh, I think you will be very impressed today with our panelists uh, talking about a very, very important topic that it's uh, relevant to all of us, uh, especially uh, in these times. And uh, it is fall. It's the first day of fall. I, I was just checking my my phone. It's at 37 degrees and fair. So that does feel like fall. Usually uh, September around this time is a little bit warmer. So, but but it's nice. It feels it feels nice and crisp. And so I hopefully everyone's staying safe. Uh, very important for you to be well. Uh, COVID is resurging in, in Connecticut. Uh, we expect that to continue to increase over the next two to three months. So this is particularly a time that you need to be need to be very mindful of, uh, of, of what's going on. Um, and we just always have to be reminded of that, to wear our masks and be real careful as you take care of patients and you go about your day. Uh, I do want to take uh, uh, just a minute to, to honor uh, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who, who passed away this past weekend. Uh, and, and it is a relevant topic for, uh, or at least a uh, line of communication for what the topic is today. Uh, and in fact, you will see we have an outstanding group of uh, women leaders in, in this field that will be speaking to us. And I have a quote from her that I, that I think it's uh, relevant to all of us, uh, just remembering this uh, amazing individual who, who did so many things for us and changed the way that, uh, that we focus and see and, and honor and care uh, for all the women leaders in this country. And, and the quote is, um, fight for the things that you care about but do it in a way that will lead others to join you. Uh, and I think that is so important. It's just an, an amazing quote from her, an amazing individual. Uh, and uh, I just want to take a, a few seconds to moment of silence in, in honoring this amazing individual that's been part of our history. Thank you, and we'll remember her. And uh, today we have uh, uh, one such amazing uh, woman leader in, in our institution. Um, she's a force. Uh, that's uh, Dr. Santos, Dr. Melissa Santos, who I've known for a long time. I tried to hire her to come in my way to work in the HIV program, and I almost got her. Um, and uh, you know, unfortunately for me, she went in a different direction. Fortunately for the institution, she stayed with us and has done just some remarkable things. Um, just a little bit of history, and then she'll introduce her, her panelists and speakers. And I could, you know, spend a long time giving you her life history, but I, can't, I don't have enough time because I don't want to take away from her presentation. Uh, she received her BA in psychology from Central Connecticut State University in 1997. She earned her master's degree in clinical psychology at the University of Hartford and her PhD in counseling psychology at Texas Tech University. Then she completed a pre-doctoral internship in clinical psychology at the Consortium Program for Medical College of Georgia in Augusta. In Augusta. And, then, um, and then she uh, also did in, at the Department of Veterans Affairs and Medical Psychology, and specializing in HIV AIDS. And that's how we initially connected as, as I was hoping she would actually come work with the HIV program. She then completed not one, but two postdoctoral fellowships, one in medical psychology at the Medical College of Georgia and the other in child and adolescent clinical psychology at the Institute of Living and Connecticut Children's Medical Center. And that's how we linked to her in 2007. Uh, at Connecticut Children, she has been instrumental in the creation of a, uh, an outstanding clinical research program in pediatric obesity and, and the development of the infrastructure for this obesity program that she co-leads with Dr. Chris Fink and has been really uh, a pioneer, you know, taking care of children and adolescents with obesity. 
Uh, her research has really elevated the reputation of Connecticut Children's and the Department of Pediatrics, and she's now NIH-funded. Uh, she has an R21. She's one of, one of the faculty members that actually has that distinction for us, and, and so we are so honored uh, to have her. Uh, and as of now, she is the interim chief of the Division of Pediatric Psychology. I'm sure that interim piece will go away very soon. Uh, she's done a ter terrific job uh, leading us, uh, connecting with us. Um, I, I enjoy uh, connecting with Melissa in so many ways. Uh, she's always driven, organized, uh, has a clear mind, clear set of goals, and it's leading us in, in a direction that I am just very honored and pleased. And so today, uh, she's going to talk to us about, I don't think it's obesity today, although maybe there's an element of that, uh, improving provider communication when working with youth with stigmatizing conditions. And she has brought a, a panelist of her colleagues uh, that she will introduce very shortly. I think you will enjoy this presentation. I understand uh, the question should be in real time is what, I, what I've been asked to do. So hopefully my microphone is working today so I, you can actually listen to me. Um, and without further ado, I'm going to ask Dr. Santos to come up here and, and uh, give her grand rounds presentation with her panels. Elizabeth. Good morning, everyone, and thank you so much, Dr. Salazar, who never lets me forget about our HIV days and <laughs> possibly going to the HIV clinic. Um, so I'm um, proud to be here to moderate today's Grand Round, sponsored by the Office of Faculty Development on Improving Provider Communication when Working with Youth with Stigmatizing Conditions. Um, just to give you an overview of our objectives for today, we first want to describe one way in which implicit bias may influence provider communication. We want to list how stigma may impact health outcomes and identify at least one new method for provider communication. As Dr. Salazar mentioned, I am the new Interim Division Chief for Pediatric Psychology, and if you're not familiar with our division, I wanted to take a moment to introduce you to our division of 11 strong pediatric psychologists, hopefully expanding shortly, um, ranging from being in all the uh, wide range of medical specialties here at Connecticut Children's, um, from us old timers in weight management to our newest location for a psychologist, which is in the NICU. Um, we have some huge goals for pediatric psychology in the upcoming, uh, for the upcoming year, um, and I can't wait for you all to hear and see some of the great stuff coming out of our division. So as Dr. Salazar mentioned, we are doing this grain rounds a little bit differently where we are taking your questions in real time. So um, as you have questions, please use them. Um, we have some questions that we received before this grain rounds that we're gonna go through, and then Dr. Salazar will go through any that we receive um, as we get them. Um, as he mentioned, I do have a panel uh, with us. So uh, Dr. Sadiqa Mulchin, who's our pediatric psychologist in hematology oncology, Dr. Mike Reese, who's our pediatric psychologist in our weight management program, and Dr. Amy Signori, who's our pediatric psychologist through a collaboration with the Village at, in Primary Care. And joining us uh, from the Yale School of Medicine and the Yale Gender Clinic is Dr. Christy Olazewski. But before we get into our panel, we wanted to hear a little bit from you. So you should be seeing some poll questions uh, popping up on your screen now. So the first question is gonna ask you um, about your trainee status. So we wanna know, are you a trainee or are you not a trainee? And Nicole, I'm not seeing it on the screen, so you may have to tell me when it's good. And we can post those results, of which I can't see them, but. So, Melissa, we have a, 
82% non-trainee and 18% trainee. Perfect. So second question is going to ask about inherent bias in the, uh, in the clinical practice. So it's going to ask you on a range of how often do you think bias occurs in healthcare delivery? And Dr. Salazar is going to be my Vanna White here to tell me a little bit what the results say. <laughs> so, Melissa, the uh, very prevalent 40%, somewhat prevalent 48%, neutral 9%, very little 3%, and not at all prevalent 0%. So between very prevalent, somewhat prevalent, uh, over 88% responded yes. Okay. So that's important as we go into this talk today. The next questions are going to ask you about your comfort level with talking to kids about certain areas of their life. And I believe the first one is mental health. So on a scale of one to five, how comfortable are you talking to kids about their mental health? Okay, so we have um, one not at all is uh, 6%, two, uh, 6%, three, 27%, four, 31%, and very comfortable, 30%. So 30% are very comfortable, but we have a, a significant number that are uh, one, two, and three. Perfect. Next question that's gonna ask is the same exact thing at a scale of one to five. How comfortable are you talking to kids about suicide? are in. So uh, one is not at all and five very comfortable. So not at all, 7%, two, 17%, three, 25%, four, 30%, and very comfortable, 20%. So 20% only very comfortable talking about this. Perfect. Thank you. Next question is going to ask you about obesity. So how comfortable are you to talk to kids about obesity? Okay, the results are in. So uh, one is not at all wish I had more training, 6%, 2, 13%, 3, 20%, 4, 25%, and actually five, very comfortable, 35%, which is uh, a bit higher number than I thought. Me too. <laughs> and last one is going to ask about transgender identity. So on a scale of one to five, how comfortable are you discussing transgender identity with
Okay, the results are in. Uh, we have, uh, again, uh, one is not at all, wish I had more training, and five is, five is very comfortable. One, 13%, two, 26%, three, 22%, four, 20%, and five drops down to 19%. So there seems to be a lesser comfort about, you know, the transgender identity than the other topics you mentioned. Perfect. So we thank you all for kind of helping with that because that helps guide as we talk about how we're going to improve provider communication and increasing comfort level with discussing certain topics. So with that, the slides are stuck. There we go. I'm going to turn this over to Dr. Mulchin to start and you'll let me know when to advance your slides, Sadiqa. Great. Good morning, everyone. I'm very privileged to be part of this panelist uh, today. Um, so before we jump right into talking about how we can improve our communication, it's important to take a step back and to reflect on what makes these conditions stigmatizing in the first place. And it is the sociocultural stereotypes that we're exposed to as children that get reinforced and repeated over time that eventually get transformed and encoded by our brains into what we call implicit biases. So implicit bias refers to the attitudes or stereotypes that impact a person's understanding actions and decisions in an unconscious manner. So society has taught us or contributed to several implicit biases for the populations we'll be talking about today. Individuals with mental health issues are crazy. Uh, individuals with uh, obesity are lazy. Individuals with transgender identity are just confused. So while uh, implicit bias does exist outside of our conscious awareness, we know through over a decade of research that it can negatively impact our patient and provider interactions, clinical decision-making, and quality of care, particularly for stigmatized groups. And its impact on our communication is through what we call subtle microaggressions, which are intentional or unintentional messages that convey hostile, derogatory, or negative attitudes or assumptions about a particular social group. And uh, while oftentimes microaggressions are not you know, uh, intentionally or overtly discriminatory and sometimes even well-intentioned, they can still nevertheless contribute to negative patient interactions because of the underlying assumptions that they communicate, which are still quite offensive. Next slide, please. So what do we do about all of this? So because implicit bias is unconscious, it is difficult to change or completely get rid of, but we know through research that it can be mitigated through a series of steps. And the first step really as with any behavior change is acknowledging that, there, that we have implicit biases, and we all have it, because we all live in society and we all have brains. So, um, so the first step is really awareness and acknowledgement um, and just accepting that society's biased us all in meaningful ways that can impact our clinical practice. The next step is to educate yourself, learn about and practice cognitive strategies that have been uh, shown by research to reduce and mitigate the impact of implicit bias on our clinical interactions. And then finally, Keep yourself accountable. Reflect on your interactions with patients and families, especially those that you felt just didn't go quite that well. And by practicing these three steps, along with the strategies that my colleagues will be discussing today, that can help us to achieve more effective communication and um, better our clinical care of, um, of stigmatized populations. So with that, I'll, I'll move on to the next panelist. Good morning, thank you. I'm Amy Signori, and I'm here today to talk to you about 
my role as a pediatric psychologist embedded in primary care and how our work helps to reduce stigma of seeking care for mental health. On this slide, you'll see a sample of the stigmatizing conditions that we see in primary care. And just by way of background, I came to Connecticut Children's three years ago through a partnership with the Village for Families and Children to develop a fully integrated model of care. There's strong rationale for integrated care. We know that there's 20% of children who meet criteria for a mental health disorder at any given time, and 50% of adolescents meet criteria for a mental health disorder at any given time. But only one in four of those kids will ever make it to behavioral health services. Access is difficult because there's a nationwide shortage of behavioral health providers, but even those who have access and have a referral often don't make it because of the stigma associated with mental health. Stigma of mental health changes the way people are thought about and how they think about themselves. Our patients will say that when they talk about some of these sensitive topics, they feel ashamed, they feel embarrassed, they feel devalued, dehumanized, dismissed. One of the reasons integrated care works so well is not only because it increases access to care, but also because it helps to reduce the stigma associated with seeking mental health care. Patients are able to talk to their pediatrician in the safety and privacy of their, their PCP's office. If you forward to the next slide, you'll see that integrated care is also successful because when physicians are working side by side with behavioral health providers, they have a shared treatment goal and they have a shared common language that they develop naturally. And we talk about in primary care, mental health as a continuum. So everyone feels sad sometimes. We talk about person-centered language, depression, this person is not depressed, they have symptoms of depression. We use language that fosters self-efficacy and um, increases self-esteem and we don't use judgment. So language is probably the most important thing and I think what we do well in primary care is to normalize behavioral health services, just make it routine part of care. Um, I'm excited to be a part of this conversation and I look forward to your questions to talk some more about what we do in primary care to reduce stigma. Thank you for Thank having you. me today. I'm Mike Reese, I'm the psychologist in the weight management program. Um, in terms, I think this is a really important topic in terms of how we can communicate about obesity and weight with families. And doing this is really tricky. Um, really recognizing what your tone is like when you're doing this. And even does the family coming to the appointment believe that their child or adolescent's weight is an issue? And also recognizing what their experience has been like even before coming to your appointment with other providers talking about weight. Discussing this in a way that the family interprets as blaming oftentimes can create mistrust, decreased buy-in, and a decreased likelihood of the family engaging in the change process to improve overall health. So really in terms of what we say, and how we say it truly matters. And it was really something that I'm looking forward to talking about with you all today. So thank you so much for having me. Next slide. Hello, everybody. Um, as uh, Dr. Santos had mentioned, my name is Christy Olazeski. I use she series pronouns. Um, 
and I'm coming uh, to you from New Haven. Um, I, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about, to set the stage, about working with uh, youth who identify as transgender or gender expansive. Um, I think that a lot of folks say, well, you know, there are not that many people who are, who identify as trans and non-binary, and um, the the uh, bottom line is we don't really know the prevalence. I think we haven't done a really great job of understanding uh, and asking about sex assigned at birth versus gender identity in a lot of surveys. Um, some folks would argue that there's about 1% of the population who identifies as trans and non-binary. Um, and uh, so I would say that if you think that you might not run into someone who identifies as trans and non-binary, um, you might want to rethink that. Uh, you might run into somebody in your, in your practice. Um, and some of the simple things that I think are really good to think about are just doing exactly what I just did. Um, you know, introducing yourself to your patients with your name and your pronouns. Um, that sort of sets the stage and lets folks know that um, you are respectful of folks' pronouns. And I, I want to say that they are pronouns. They're not preferred. Um, you know, if somebody preferred to use different pronouns with me, I would get a little upset. Um, and so I think it's really important for us to, to be respectful of each other's pronouns. Um, watching when we're working with folks, you know, what terms are we using? Um, are, we, are we thinking of this from a heteronormative perspective? Are we asking about um, partners in a certain way? Are we talking to folks and using terms like handsome or pretty? Um, thinking about that. One of the things that we say at the Yale Gender Program is everybody's on a gender journey and everybody's gender journey is unique. And I think that that goes for cis folks as well as trans folks. Um, and so I think it's really important to just honor that um, and understand that, you know, we don't have any preconceived notions about where somebody's going to go on their gender journey, but we want to support them because we know that in the trans and gender expansive population, for example, um, suicide attempt rates are up to 41%, you know, 41% of adults report that they have attempted suicide in their lifetime. And if you think about that in, you know, in relationship to uh, it's 4.6 in the general population, that's a really high rate of folks. Um, and so thinking about, you know, really understanding how people can be supported um, and how people can feel affirmed and uh, in their identity and how you can be respectful of their, uh, of their identity in, in your practice. Um, just because we don't understand somebody's journey doesn't mean that it's not real, right? Um, one of the things that we've done, uh, if you are seeing folks in, in person, is uh, we've used Sharpies and we've, off, we've uh, done trainings where we've given Sharpies out to front desk staff um, because what is really helpful for folks also is if they have a chosen name that they use instead of their legal name, it can be really upsetting to see that legal name uh, printed on the wristband. And so our front desk staff will cross off the uh, the legal name uh, for the wristband, at least, so that the youth doesn't have to see it, and they will have uh, the chosen name, the one that's printed. Um, so those are some of the sort of quick shifts that I think would be important. Um, and I think that I'll leave on just be kind when you see patients um, in terms of just being kind and, and um, accepting them as who they are. So thanks everyone. So we wanted to give you a brief overview of where all of our panelists were kind of coming from. And now we're gonna turn this over to Q&A. So Dr. Salazar is mentioning, is manning the iPad and I have some questions up here. I can start with two, unless you've got some Dr. Salazar. Uh, we do have a question uh, for, the, for the group uh, and I'll, I'll hand it to you, Melissa, and then you can distribute the question if you may. 
Um, isn't stigma associated with mental health disorders prevalent through all of society and over the centuries, not just now and in our patients? Uh, is a culture change in this regard even possible? What evidence do we have about this? How do we get started? Amy, Sadiqa, do either one of you want to take that one? I would love to take it. Yes, stigma has been present in our culture and our society. Um, I would say in the spirit of Ruth Bader Ginsburg that anything is possible. And like I said in my, in my brief introduction, that we get started in medicine and we normalize behavioral health. Um, we are human. We all have emotions. We all have stress of varying degrees. And um, someone needs to help us manage these things. And um, I'll just briefly talk about, there's a campaign now to raise awareness among suicide um, for physicians. And we know that physicians complete suicide more than non-physician counterparts do. And why do physicians not seek treatment? Because of the stigma associated with seeking treatment. They have reduced social opportunities. Um, their colleagues may not trust their judgment. Um, and so for fear of getting services, they don't. So I think that medicine has to change this. And if we all kind of normalize feelings, stress, emotions, and getting help, that's how we change the culture. Uh, thank yeah. you. Um, oh, is there another, another comment? Go ahead. I'll just add, I think Amy's answer sort of reflected what I was, what, what I would have communicated anyways, but I will just add that, you know, women in leadership was not something that would have been considered um, you know, part of, of general and normative society, you know, centuries ago, and, and we were able to change that. So yes, it does take time for our societal norms to change, but they can change. Thank you, Siddiqui. I appreciate that answer. And there, we have two more questions, uh, one from Dr. Adamenko, one of our pediatricians. Is it appropriate to disclose our discomfort with a specific entity to the patient and or family? Great question for any of you. Chrissy, do you want to take that one? So I think that's a really great question. And I think that, um, you know, one of the, you know, one of the things that people can do is say, um, you know, I, I haven't had experience with this before and um, I'd like to consult, um, you know, with somebody else if you don't feel comfortable with a certain population. Um, and I think that, it, it all depends on sort of how we, how we frame our response, um, you know, and uh, so I'll, I'll give an example also of, of when, this, um, when this sort of worked and didn't work at the same time. So uh, we had uh, a youth come to um, a, one of our providers and say, I'm trans and you need to help me. And at this time we didn't have a program and our provider said, well, that's great. And we have these programs, um, you know, in New York and in Boston, and you can go to one of these um, programs because I don't really know how to do that. And the youth came back with their family and said, you know what, hey, um, actually, you're my provider and I need you to do this. And I need you to, to feel comfortable doing this. And I need you to learn how to do this because I can't afford to go anywhere else. You know, I live in New Haven and, and I don't have a transportation. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, this, this led to the provider learning about um, the population and learning how to provide care um, and, and saying, okay, I, I may not have all the answers, but I really want to learn. 
Um, and so I think that there's multiple ways that, that somebody can address that. You know, you could say, okay, I don't have the expertise in this. Let me call on my colleague for this. And also, um, I want to learn and I want to support you as your provider. And so I'm going to, I'm going to make that leap. We have uh, three more questions. Uh, one from uh, our own Dr. Zemsky. How do you directly address the potential conflict between parent and child regarding gender identity when meeting with families? Christy, we'll keep on going with that one. <laughs> so far, this is a really, really great question and one that comes up often. Um, and I think, you know, I'll, I'll answer that multiple ways again. Um, I think that, you know, when, when working with families, there, there sometimes is conflict, you know, sometimes our youth have been thinking about this and, and um, you know, have really been working through processing their own identity for a long period of time, and then they tell their parents and their parents don't, don't understand. Um, and so I think that it's really important. Um, oftentimes, what we will suggest is, you know, that parents have a separate space where they can process um, what this is like for them uh, separately from their youth, um, because sometimes um, folks will say things that that are not terribly uh, supportive of their of their children. Um, I don't think that they mean to do that necessarily, but sometimes it, it comes across as, as non-affirming. Um, and so I think that I would suggest, you know, working with, um, you know, the parents to understand where they're coming from and also supporting the youth. Uh, there's a model called the multidimensional uh, family therapy model from Jean Malpass uh, that talks about this. Um, specifically, which is really helpful, uh, but that doesn't necessarily help you in the room, right? Uh, and so one of the things that we will talk about with providers is that it's really, really helpful to talk about the impact of parent support and that even if um, parents don't understand, again, you know, they don't understand sort of what's happening, that their support is one of the most protective factors uh, for their children um, in terms of mental health, uh, negative mental health and physical health outcomes. Um, and so we talk about the importance of support with parents. Um, we help them to understand that they are not alone, that of course, yeah, this, this may seem like it's coming out of left field. And yes, of course, you know, they wanna do the best for their child and also, you know, that they're, they're struggling. And so we help them find um, supports and groups in the community and um, have a place where they can feel supported and also support their child. Um, did that answer the question? Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you. We have, uh, we have two more, and I think then maybe if you have additional questions, but yeah. the, well, actually we have three now. Uh, this is more of a comment from uh, one of our pediatricians. One step uh, to, to be, begin to address this issue would be to get insurance companies to pay for mental health services at the same level that they pay for physical health services. In fact, all cognitive services should be paid at a rate equal to manipulative service. I'm not sure that's the right word, but it's manipulative service, I think, would be care services. So, yes, thank you. I think we, we all agree with that. Um, from Dr. Zellneritis, anything is, anything is possible with regard to stigma, uh, and we should try to change the culture, but a lot of people for a long time have been trying unsuccessfully to do that. What is the innovation? Can you... Can you provide an innovation or a promise? Is there one? So how we can address this, uh, including presenting it here and then recognizing it, but how do we change that? Uh, Dr. Mulchin, do you wanna take that question? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that we need to study it more. There is limited research on looking at interventions specifically with healthcare providers that tend to be prone to implicit biases because of the automization, automatization that we 
um, are, are often, you know, the environments that, that we're put into. And so we really need to do more research to test interventions that we know can be effective. And we need to start earlier. We need to start with training our residents and our uh, medical students to be able to understand a little bit more about implicit bias and how that affects their clinical practice. And I think that's going to be the innovation and the key. And we have, you know, backing from the American Academy of Pediatrics, which have called for including impl implicit bias training in, um, in medical education. We just haven't been able to quite do it yet. So we need to overcome those barriers and start with that. And I think that will be, be able to really help change uh, the uh, implicit biases that are pervasive throughout society. Great question. Uh, from Dr. Wakefield, uh, thank you so much for this incredible presentation topic. Um, you told her to say that, right? She's getting a race for that one. Okay. <laughs> You're all fabulous. That double that's race. Double anyway. race. Um, but the question is, how would you suggest approaching other providers who demonstrate discomfort with a particular population, specific population? So, Dr. Mulchin, do you want to take that one too? Sure. I think that, you know, being able to, one, uh, model for other people and talk about your own experiences can be a great first step. And then education. So, so talking with your colleagues about, you know, gosh, I, I went to Grand Rounds and I heard about this thing called implicit bias. And, you know, I, I didn't realize X, Y, and Z. And I looked into the literature a little bit more. And boy, there's this thing called counter stereotyping. Um, and in counter stereotyping, I think in, in and of itself can be very helpful when you actively seek out intentional or intentionally seek out information that combats the negative stereotypes that we may have experienced. So learning about mental health within celebrities, for example, or learning about uh, transgender identity and how pervasive it may be and how prevalent it may be, um, and learning about obesity and, and the, the impact that our, our communication can have on that population, that can sort of start to change some of the negative associations that have been created by our society. And then educating your colleagues about that can be a great first step so I think that that, that um, hopefully that answers the question a little bit. There are multiple ways to answer it, but I think that's probably the best way. Thank you, Sadiq. And the last question here in this group is uh, from, from Dr. Serzer, uh, one of our, our faculty members and general pediatricians. Does the group feel that children may be treated with psychotherapeutics without behavioral health support? And conversely, should physicians seek the input of behavioral health assessments before initiating psychotherapeutics? Amy, do you want to take that one? And you may have to unmute yourself. Well, my answer would be that always we want the best treatment would be a combination of psychotherapeutics and behavioral behavioral health services. And um, of course, we always want to use evidence-based approaches and that includes screenings um, and assessments to make sure that we're, we're treating accurately. The last question on the panel. Perfect. I got some coming my way. So let me ask you all sort of this. I, one of the things that I hear sometimes from providers was when they're talking about kids without a condition or a topic they're not used to, they're not as familiar with, they're trying to say all the right things. And sometimes in the process of it, they totally put their foot in their mouth and they totally mess up in what they intended to do. Mike, you and I will see a lot of that in obesity when people are well-meaning and trying to talk to kids about their health and they completely miss the mark in the right way to talk to kids about stuff. So what does a provider do when they're trying the best to kind of communicate and get to the child's level and they completely mess up in their communication? Mike, do you want to start with that one? Of course, you're allowed to apologize to your patient if you mess up. And in fact, your patients will not think any less of you if you apologize. And in fact, that's oftentimes the right thing to do 
is just to apologize and hopefully they will forgive you right then and there and you can move on to what you were hoping to talk about. Any other comments from the panel? Yeah, sure, I'll go, um, because this is a common one that happens. Oh, sorry, Amy. Um, <laughs> this is something that happens with, um, you know, trans youth oftentimes with, you know, pronouns and names and stuff. And, and one of the things that we've heard from our patients is exactly like Mike said, just apologize. Um, let them know that you are sorry. Um, no need to sort of um, to belabor that apology. Um, I think that, uh, you know, just apologizing shows you that you're human and that you recognize that you made a mistake and that you are, um, you know, you are sorry for, for doing that and then just moving on and, and moving forward and, and trying to do, you know, to, to remember that the next time. And Amy, were you gonna say something? I was just gonna say that it's it's very difficult to mess up and that if you just approach your patients with empathy, that that's all that they're really asking for is they just want you to hear them, to listen to them, to validate them. And if, as long as you do that, and I think most physicians do that well, then you really can't mess up. Perfect. And although yeah. we're talking about, from, oh, were you gonna say something, Sadiqa? We'll just add that yes, move on in that particular interaction, but then use those those three steps that we talked about earlier and really reflect on that interaction and what could have went better and whether there were any biases that you may have had or any assumptions that you made with that family, so that for the next interaction where you have a similar um, a similar patient, you can make that better. So let me ask you all this: you all come from separate clinics, but we know that kids are not so unique that they just belong to sort of one clinic. So I'll take my own caseload. I have several kids on my caseload that obviously have obesity, that have a comorbid mental health condition, and that are also transgender. So if you're in the pediatrician's office and a kid presents with multiple things, how do you prioritize where to focus, where to tackle? Does mental health always take the, the precedent in sort of that? Amy, do you want to start with that? Sure. Uh, what I would say about that is that we always want to be person-centered, and so I would allow the patient to prioritize what is most important to them because they may disclose that they're transgender, but they have no concern that that's fine. Or they may, you, the doctor may bring up that their BMI is high, but they have no desire to change that right now. So allow them to, to rank the importance of, of what needs help at this moment. Any other thoughts from the panel? I, I just, I would, oh, sorry. I would just, I, I would agree with that. And I think that um, also what's important is um, it's not only sort of hearing from the patient, but also recognizing that if there is, if there are multiple providers and multiple sort of clinics that a youth needs to go to, that it's okay to go to them at the same time also, as, as long as there's good communication and open communication across providers. Um, yeah. Sorry, Perfect. And I'll ask one more, and then I will turn this back over to Dr. Salazar and any questions he has. And Christy, this one's gonna to go to you. Um, I know you mentioned a little bit about pronouns before, but how do I know what pronoun to use with a patient? This actually happened to one of our providers last week. Um, what if they've never heard of the pronoun before? So we had a provider who saw a patient whose preferred pronoun was um, Z-E, Z, and they didn't know what that was. They had never heard it before. Do you just roll with it? What do you kind of do in that situation? Yeah, that's also a great question. There's a whole list. Um, if anybody wants to see it, you can Google um, non-binary pronoun list, and there's a whole wide range. Um, we have also come across some that we haven't noticed. So, so he, 
him, his, she, her, her, they, them, theirs are oftentimes used. Um, you know, there's also uh, the Z, 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 um, series uh, pronouns. Um, and, uh, and so what, what you can do again is, you know, say, my name is Dr. Olszewski, I use she, her, her pronouns or she series pronouns, um, you know, ask the, the patient. And if you haven't heard about it, be like, oh, that's interesting. So can you tell me like, what are the, you know, what's the plural of that? Like, how does that work? Okay, I've never used that before. And um, that's new to me. And so I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, use that and, and try my best to use that. Um, but thank you for telling me. And, and yeah, roll with it. <laughs> I'll turn this back over to you. Uh, so for, for all of you who are participating, if you can go ahead and, uh, and send your Q&A uh, through the Q&A section of, of, the, of the meeting, uh, there's plenty of time for, for questions. There are, uh, there are about 130 of you, so um, I'm 138 actually, so that's a, that's a great list. So while we're waiting for, you know, for, the, for the panelists, uh, I mean, this is great. This is an opportunity to have a, an unbelievable team. And I love, uh, I know they're not virtual backgrounds for both Siddika and, and Chrissy. Um, I think Amy's is virtual and Mike, I'm not sure. Um, so it, it gives me a lot of peace. Maybe I'm going there for therapy for each, with each one of you. The question I have uh, in, in, in our clinic is back to the HIV clinic. And we, we obviously see, um, you know, many, uh, many kids, uh, we, you know, transgender uh, uh, gay kids uh, that, that come into our clinic and uh, we create a, an environment of a safe space for them. Uh, but they do share frequently that going into an emergency room, an urgent care, uh, a primary care office is very difficult for them. So we have a long way to go. What, what are the things that we can begin to change so that, that all these areas where people enter care, which are not the office necessarily, become more uh, more more friendly, um, and and then try to eliminate the biases that are inherent in those systems. That's a great question. I know, Christy, you mentioned the uh, pronouns on the wristband. Are there other ones that you would recommend as well? Yeah, so that's a great question, um, and I think that it there's again multiple ways to answer that. So um, going back to what Sadika was saying is, you know, thinking about what trainings we're offering um, to folks that are in those settings, um, you know, helping them to understand. You know, there's a great survey that comes out every year, the U.S. Trans Health Survey. I would suggest people look at ex the executive summary and, you know, how folks are being treated, um, you know, in hospital-based settings um, to understand the problems. Um, and I think that uh, sort of understanding what patients are going through is, is helpful in that respect. I think that, you know, do we have um, non-discrimination statements up do we uh, have on our, you know, when folks come into the hospital setting, do we have a name, uh, a legal name spot, and then also a preferred name or chosen name spot? Are we asking about pronouns to use in, you know, in something when they first come to the front desk that shows them that they are accepted there, that, that people understand that pronouns are important? Are we asking that, you know, do providers have um, you know, it's something simple, you know, on our lanyards, we have, you know, I, I bought our team, um, you know, trans flag hearts. Um, so that's really apparent, you know, we have pronoun stickers. Um, you know, we also have uh, pride flag um, uh, pieces on our, you know, or pride flag lanyards or, or something that's on our, um, on our uh, IDs. Um, those things, you know, show folks that that's something, you know, you can have the safe space stickers some, in some places. And I think also just ask, you know, thinking about the questions that we're asking folks, you know, are we asking because we're curious or are we asking 
um, because we actually need to to do that or, or to understand that particular issue. You know, I had a friend who went in for um, uh, uh, some some help with um, uh, dialysis, and they were asked, you know, what what if they had the surgery. You know, so so thinking about sort of what questions are we asking folks, and what how are we training our our front desk staff to to interact with folks? How are we training our docs? How are we you know talking about this in in different environments? It's an interesting point too, Dr. Salazar, because at one point I worked in an HIV clinic that to get to it, you had to go down three hallways and it was like past the janitorial staff kind of area. It was like way in the back, like very hidden, very dark, very dingy. I worked in mental health clinics that are like that as well. When we initially start obesity, I'm sad to say we actually had kids break exam tables because we didn't have the right equipment to even support them. So I think about even just in all of our clinics, do we have the right things there to help support kids and to make them feel comfortable be it the lanyards, be it the preferred pronouns, be it making sure that the exam table isn't going to break under them. Yeah, thank you. That great response. We have two more questions uh, from uh, Dr. Livingston. Uh, what do you do with parents who refuse to acknowledge their child's gender dysphoria or gender identity and reject any referrals for the child or for themselves? How can we best support these children? And Christy, that'll be you. Yeah, yeah that's a great, great question. Um, oftentimes, what what we will do is if they if they come into our care we will give them referrals um you know to groups um we'll give them a reading list um i have a, a sort of a parent packet that i send out with information um you know we will try to connect them with a provider in the community who can follow them and support the youth um and help the help the parent sort of um sort of understand and like I said, you know, sort of go through this process. Sometimes it's a grief process. Sometimes, you know, it's their own coming out process, um, you know, on the, on the side. So I think referrals to outside providers, you know, allowing the youth to know that this is a safe space. Um, you know, I know that they're, you know, Priya Pawani, Dr. Pawani is doing this great work uh, at Connecticut Children's, you know, and would they want to, you know, speak with her, speak with somebody, you know, that works with her or, you know, one of your behavioral health folks here, um, you know, to sort of help them to understand this process. There are, there are great referrals that if you have that, you know, in, in your sort of back pocket that you could be like, oh, well, I know right now, you know, this is a hard time and um, this is really difficult for you and this is something that sort of um, is surprising maybe. And so, you know, a lot of folks have some difficulties, you know, when this first comes out. And so here's this list of providers or resources online or places that you can go and, hey, did you want to speak to somebody today? Um, and if you have that ability to do a warm handoff, it can be really helpful, I think, to Amy's point before. Uh, thank you, Chrissy. Really appreciate that. Uh, uh, from uh, another question that uh, uh, this is for Sadiqa specifically. Can you talk about what you have heard from kids with sickle cell disease regarding their experience in the healthcare setting? Sure, yes. I know I didn't really talk a little bit about, you know, what, what it is that I do, and I apologize for that. Um, I think that our, our sickle cell population, because there is pain and there's sort of an invisibility associated with pain, um, there is a stigma associated with the condition in particular on top of the, that uh, condition being primarily, um, uh, it primarily affects racial and ethnic minority individuals. And um, I think that oftentimes patients uh, have shared with me that they find you know, communicating with providers very challenging, um, that there are sort of these microaggressions that are oftentimes not intentional, 
um, that get communicated in terms of, you know, well, did you take your oral pain medications at home? Um, you know, you were just at this other uh, ED a couple days ago. What, what was the reason that you came here? Or why didn't you get admitted there? And so again, I, these are appropriate questions in terms of trying to understand the clinical picture, but for patients that gets communicated to them oftentimes um, that, that they are there for the pain medication as opposed to pain relief. Um, and I think you know, one of the ways that we can, can work to address that is, um, is, is really just taking a step back and looking at pain in general and understanding that, that pain in and of itself is something that we are ethically obligated as healthcare providers to treat. We, we are supposed to be able to, to try our best to alleviate pain and do so in an ethical way and in an appropriate way according to guidelines, but, um, but oftentimes pain is, is sort of the backdrop of, of what I, um, I hear from patients being uh, very stigmatizing about their condition. Thank you. Another question. Um, uh, how do you recommend beginning to address obesity in a youth with one or both parents who are also obese? That sounds like it's for you, Dr. Santos. Oh, that's going to be for Dr. Reese. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so that's a great question. Um, I really think it's important being upfront with the family before we even talk about weight, letting them know that we're not looking to be, make any judgments. We're not looking to blame anybody for what's going on. And I kind of try to turn, uh, we're on a fact-finding mission to figure out how we can be helpful and knowing that people with obesity tend to be blamed for their weight. And there's a degree that people think that there's a degree of high personal responsibility. Um, and really it's important to really be empathic when we're talking about this. I like using visuals, using the BMI curve and letting families know that when we get to a certain point, it's more likely that there might be some medical issues uh, down the road with that. Um, so really being empathic, being non-judgmental, and in terms of our clinic, really making it, it's family focused. If we're asking the child to make some changes, we're also asking the family to make some changes too, um, because that wouldn't be fair just singling out an 11-year-old child. And I think that's an important key is that if we always emphasize if you as a grown-up can't make a change, we can't expect that child to make that change as well. And then breaking up the unit of the family, as Dr. Reese said, I think is critical. So there was a, actually a question that was sent via text to me. Um, people do it, use all kinds of forms, so thank you. I don't, I don't mind taking any of them, but uh, the, the, the question is, um, how do we deal with the stigma of, of, of in the current environment of being an illegal citizen and seeking health care as a young person? Dr. Mulchin, do you want to take that one? Sure. As, as, and I heard that last bit, Dr. Salazar, as a young person, yeah, so I think it's referring to a, a, a young patient, adolescent patient, uh, perhaps family is here illegally. Uh, they're going through the system and, and uh, you know, in the current environment, I think there's been um, certainly a pushback against, uh, you know, people that are coming into the country. And cer certainly if they have, uh, if they don't have any papers, in addition to the legal ramifications, there's also the stigma of why are you here? And, and if you're a young person, how do you deal with that? Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think that, um, you know, in terms of the young person, you know, if, if, if possible, providers can make a referral, of course, to their behavioral health specialist. As providers ourselves, I think being able to, um, to, to recognize where, you know, where patients may not be able to follow through on recommended guidelines and talking with them and problem solving to, to determine other potential options for them if, you know, they're unable to um, access these other services because of their um, of, of their immigrant status. 
I think also just being familiar with community resources, specifically for, um, for populations that may be undocumented, can also be really helpful and relying on our social work colleagues to help us with, with that information as well might be a way to just ensure that that population doesn't get lost to follow up and that they do have uh, you know, some appropriate resources to be able to, um, to access appropriate care. I hope that answers the question, but if not, let me know. I think it does. Thank you. Um, I don't have any other questions here, Melissa. So if you Sure. So as we look to wrap up uh, today's grand rounds, we, you know, we put the focus on this that we really wanted to imp improve provider communication. So for each of you, what is your take home message for each provider listening today? What's one thing that they can take home with them um, to improve their communication in the clinic when they're dealing with, with what we've called stigmatizing conditions? Sadiqa, I'll start with you. Sure. So I would just go back to that three-step process and be able to be comfortable with that and be able to recognize that we're not always going to be perfect and that we are all biased um, but we can change that as well. And research has showed us that we can change it. And, and educating yourself about implicit bias. We'll include a few resources on the website um, to help you for, you know, if you're interested in uh, learning more about implicit bias. So educating yourself and then practicing those three-step process to be able to mitigate the impact of implicit bias on your clinical care patients. Amy? So I agree with everything Sadiqa said, and I would just add that language really matters. And so when, when someone discloses to you that they're having a mental health problem, um, just supporting them, letting them know that there's treatment, offer hope, um, and increase their self-efficacy. We know that you can do this, um, that you can get better, and we have help and provide resources for, for support. Uh, Mike? Words, I just want to echo that. Words really do matter. And if, if you don't get it right the first time or even the second time or the third, that's okay. But just as long as you apologize to the family and being upfront about that, no one's perfect and that's not the expectation. Uh, Christy? Yeah, no, I, I just will echo what everybody has said. You know, thinking about sort of what you're bringing into the room, thinking about bias, understanding how, you know, you can do better next time, being kind, um, you know, and, and if you don't know something, asking, um, asking in a way that is, is kind, right? Um, oh, I've never heard of that before. Can you tell me more about that? And um, as Amy said also, and I think it's been, you know, talked about throughout is resources, you know, what resources do we have to sort of support these families and youth um, as they continue on their journeys. And I know that there are some resources that our panel um, has put together for, um, for the audience that are gonna be on the webpage and on EADS, and they were gonna put it in the chat box if they wanted to prior to the end of this grand round. So you might see it uh, there. I think we have time for one more. I have one if you don't. So my last question is gonna to go to you, Amy, and it's the question that I probably hear the, the most often. Um, which is from providers about asking about mental health concerns. And it usually goes something like, I don't ask about mental health concerns because truthfully, I don't want to know the answer. What am I supposed to do in a busy clinic if someone tells me they're thinking about hurting themselves? I wouldn't know what to say or what to do because I don't have a mental health provider in my clinic. How would you guide that communication? I think that's a really great question. It's a question that I hear a lot too. And if you don't know what to do, it's understandable that you might not want to ask. Um, but what I'd like to say is that there are things that you can do to help, um, especially in terms of, of suicide risk. And um, so 
there are resources available. There are crisis resources to provide to families, crisis 211. There's um, a referral source for the, the village for families and children, for example. Um, and there's a, it's just a one phone call referral that I can provide the resource and the phone number for that. Um, but in the exam room, in that moment, um, you can bring family members in for support. People tend to not hurt themselves when they're around other people. So making sure that, that children have adequate supervision and support, making sure that a home is safe and that you're removing um, any means of self-harm, um, providing resources, mental health and behavioral health resources in the community. So there are things that you can do in the moment. I'm not sure if that answers the question completely. Was there another part to it, Melissa? Nope, I think that was it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, uh, Melissa, uh, Mike, Amy, Chrissy, and Sandika. Really uh, outstanding panel. I think you handle it better than I've ever seen. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, we're getting like CNN now, it's, uh, or uh, whichever channel you follow. Yes. But it's, uh, it's just done a really, really good job. I, I, I'm very proud of the work that, that you're leading. Uh, I think, uh, you know, for Connecticut Children's, having uh, uh, experts in psychology embedded within the primary care setting and within the subspecialty clinics has made a huge difference. And, and I think that's really, in the end, what's gonna change our ability to address these issues very directly with experts like you that allow us to feel more comfortable. Uh, so thank you everyone uh, of the almost 140 people who joined this morning. Uh, I hope you found this useful. The uh, references have been sent in directly by, uh, by our panelists uh, with the website, so please log into them. And if you have any, any additional questions, uh, please let us know. If this is a useful format, please let us know. And again, thank you, Dr. Santos and your thank team you. for an outstanding round rounds. Uh, have a great day, be safe, and I'll see you on Friday. Bye-bye.